Chapter Nineteen of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen. The Unknown Peril. Dark and ominous as was the prospect of everything around the Count de Merceuil when the blessings of his bright days were passing away, one by one, and his best hope was exile. Yet the interview which had just taken place between him and Clémence de Marly was like a bright summer hour in the midst of storms, and even when it was over, like the June sun, it left a long twilight of remembered joy behind it. But there are times in human life when dangers are manifold, when we are pressed upon by a thousand difficulties, and when, nevertheless, though the course we have determined on is full of risks and perils, sorrows and sufferings, we eagerly, perhaps even imprudently, hurry forward upon it, to avoid those very doubts and uncertainties, which are worse than actual pains. Such was the case with the Count de Mosseuil, and he felt within him so strong an inclination to take the irrevocable step of quitting France for ever, and seeking peace and toleration in another land, that, much accustomed to examine and govern his own feelings, he paused, and pondered over the line of conduct he was about to pursue during his visit to the Bishop of Meaux, perceiving in himself a half-concealed purpose of forcing on the conversation to the subject of religion, and of showing Bossuet clearly that there was no chance whatever of inducing him to abandon the religion of his fathers. Against this inclination, on reflection, he determined to be upon his guard, although he adhered rigidly to his resolution of countenancing, in no degree, a hope of his becoming a convert to the Roman Catholic faith. And his only doubt now was whether his passing two evenings so close together with the Bishop of Meaux, with whom he had so slight an acquaintance, might not afford some encouragement to expectations which he felt himself bound to check. Having promised, however, he went, but at the same time made up his mind not to return to the prelate's abode speedily. On the present occasion, he not only found Bossuet alone, but was left with him for more than an hour, without any other visitor appearing. The good bishop himself was well aware of the danger of scaring away those whom he sought to win, and sincerely desirous, for the Count's own sake, of bringing him into that which he believed to be the only path to salvation, he was inclined to proceed calmly and gently in the work of his conversion. There were others, however, more eager than himself. The king was as impetuous in the apostolic zeal which he believed himself to feel, as he had formerly been in pursuits which, though certainly more gross and sensual, would perhaps, if accurately weighed, have been found to be as little selfish, vain and personal as the efforts that he made to convert his Protestant subjects. The hesitation even in regard to embracing the king's creed was an offence, and he urged on Bossuet eagerly to press the young count so far, at least, as to ascertain if there were or were not a prospect of his speedily following the example of Turenne and so many others. The bishop was thus driven to the subject, though against his will, and shortly after the young count's appearance he took him kindly and mildly by the hand, and led him into a small cabinet where were ranged in goodly order a considerable number of works on the controversial divinity of the time. Amongst others appeared some of the good prelate's own productions, such as 
l'exposition de la doctrine catholique, the Traité de la Communion sur les deux espèces, and Histoire des Variations. Bossuet ran his finger over the titles as he pointed them out to the young Count. I wish, my young friend, he said, that I could prevail upon you to read some of these works, some perhaps even of my own, not from the vanity of an author alone, though I believe that the greatest compliment that has ever been paid to me was that which was paid by some of the pastors of your own sect, who asserted when I wrote that book, and he pointed to the exposition, that I had altered the Catholic doctrines in order to suit them to the purposes of my defence. Nor, indeed, would they admit the contrary till the full approbation of the head of our church stamped the work as containing the true doctrines of our holy faith. But, as I was saying, I wish I could persuade you to read some of these, not so much to gratify the vanity of an author, nor even simply to make a convert, but because I look upon you as one well worthy of saving, as a brand from the burning, and because I should look upon your recall to the bosom of the Mother Church as worth a hundred of any ordinary conversions. In short, my dear young friend, because I would save you from much unhappiness in life, in death, and in eternity. I owe you deep thanks, Monsieur de Meaux, said the Count, for the interest that you take in me, and I will promise you most sincerely to read, with as unprejudiced an eye as possible, not only any, but all of the works you have written on such subjects. I have already read some, and it is by no means too much to admit that if anyone could induce me to quit the faith in which I have been brought up, it would be Monsieur de Meaux. He will not think me wrong, however, when I say that I am as yet unconvinced nor will he be offended if I make one observation, or rather ask one question, in regard to something he has just said. "'Far, far from it, my son,' replied the bishop. "'I am ever willing to explain anything, to enter into the most open and candid exposition of everything that I think or feel. I have no design to embarrass, or to perplex, or to obscure. My whole view is to make my own doctrine clear and explicit,' so that the mind of the merest child may choose between the right and the wrong. "'I merely wish to ask,' said the Count, "'whether by the words unhappiness in life and in death "'you meant to allude to temporal or spiritual unhappiness, "'whether you meant delicately to point out to me "'that the hand of persecution is likely to be stretched out to oppress me, "'or—' "'No, no!' cried Bossuet eagerly. Heaven forbid that I should hold out as an inducement the apprehension of things that I disapprove of. No, Monsieur de Mosset, I meant merely spiritual happiness and unhappiness, for I do not believe that any man can be perfectly happy in life while persisting in a wrong belief. Certainly I believe that he must be unhappy in his death, and alas, my son, reason and religion both teach me that he must be unhappy in eternity. The great question of eternity, replied the Count solemnly, is in the hands of God, but the man, and the only man, who in this sense must be unhappy in life, in death, and in eternity, seems to me to be the man who is uncertain in his faith. In life and in death I can conceive the deist, or, if there be such a thing, the atheist, if perfectly convinced of the truth of his system, perfectly happy and perfectly contented. 
but the sceptic can never be happy. He who, in regard to religious belief, is doubtful, uncertain, wavering, must assuredly be unhappy in life and in death, though to God's great mercy we must refer the eternity. If I remain unshaken, Monsieur de Meaux, in my firm belief that what we call the Reformed Church is right in its views and doctrines, the only thing that can disturb or make me unhappy therein is temporal persecution. Were my faith in that church, however, shaken, I would abandon it immediately. I could not, I would not, remain in a state of doubt. The more anxious I am, my son, replied the bishop, to withdraw you from that erroneous creed, for so firm and so decided a mind as yours is the very one which could the best appreciate the doctrines of the Church of Rome, which are always clear, definite, and precise, the same today as they were yesterday, based upon decisions that never change, and not, as your faith does, admitting doubts and fostering variations. You must listen to me, my young friend. Indeed, I must have you listen to me. I hear some of our other friends in the next room, but we must converse more, and the sooner the better. You have visited me twice, but I will next visit you, for I think nothing should be left undone that may court a noble spirit back to the Church of God. Thus saying, he slowly led the way into the larger room, the young Count merely replying as he did so, Would to God, Monsieur de Meaux, that by your example and by your exhortations you could prevent others from giving us Protestants the strongest of all temporal motives to remain attached to our own creed. What motive is that? demanded Bossuet, apparently in some surprise. Persecution, replied the Count, for depend upon it, to all those who are worthy of being gained, persecution is the strongest motive of resistance. Alas, my son, replied Bossuet, that you should acknowledge such a thing as pride to have anything on earth to do with the eternal salvation of your souls. An old friend of mine used to say, it is more often from pride than from want of judgment that people set themselves up against established opinions. Men find the first places occupied in the right party, and they do not choose to take up with back seats. I have always known this to be true in the things of the world, but I think that pride should have nothing to do with the things of eternity. Thus ended the conversation between the Count and Bossuet on the subject of religion for that night. Two guests had arrived, more soon followed, and the conversation became more general. Still, however, as there were many ecclesiastics, the subject of religion was more than once introduced. The restraint which the presence of a Protestant nobleman had occasioned on the first visit of the Count having now been removed. The evening passed over calmly and tranquilly, however, till about ten o'clock at night when the Count took his leave and departed. The rest of the guests stayed later, and on issuing out into the street the young nobleman found himself alone in a clear, calm, moonlight night, with the irregular shadows of the long line of houses checkering the pavement with the yellow lustre of the moon. Looking up into the wide open square beyond, the shadows were lost, and there the bright planet of the night seemed to pour forth a flood of radiance, without let or obstruction. There was a fountain in the middle of the square, casting up its sparkling waters towards the sky, as if spirits were tossing about the moonbeams in their sport, and casting the bright rays from hand to hand. As the Count gazed, however, 
and thought that he would stroll on, giving himself up to calm reflection at that tranquil hour, and arranging his plans for the momentous future without disturbance from the hum of idle multitudes, a figure suddenly came between the fountain and his eyes, and crept slowly down the dark side of the street towards him. He was standing at the moment in the shadow of Bossway's porch, so as not to be seen, but the figure came down the street to the door of the Count's own dwelling, paused for a minute as if in doubt, then walked over into the moonlight and gazed up into the windows of the prelate's hotel. The Count instantly recognised the peculiar form and structure of his valet, Jérôme Riquet, and walking out from the porch towards his own house, he called the man to him and asked if anything were the matter. "'Why, yes, sir,' said Riquet in a low tone, "'so much so that I thought of doing what I never did in my life before, "'sending in for you to know what to do. "'There has been a person seeking you twice or three times since you went, "'and saying he must speak with you immediately.' "'Do you know him?' demanded the Count. "'Oh, yes, I know him,' answered Riquet. "'A determined devil he is, too, "'a man in whom you used to place much confidence in the army.' and who was born, I believe, upon your own lands. Armand d'Aval, you know him well. I could give him another name if I liked. Well, said the Count, as tranquilly as possible, what of him, Riquet? What does he want here? Ah, sir, that I cannot tell, replied the man, but I greatly suspect he wants no good. He is dressed in black from his head to his feet, and his face is black enough too, that is to say, the look of it. It was always like a thundercloud, and now it is like a thundercloud gone mad. I don't think the man is sane, sir, and the third time he came down here, about ten minutes ago, he said he could not stop a minute, that he had business directly, and so he went away, pulling his great dark hat and feather over his head, as if to prevent people from seeing how his eyes were flashing, and then I saw that the breast of his great heavy coat was full of something else than rosemary or honeycomb. "'What do you mean? What do you mean?' demanded the Count. "'What had he in his breast?' "'Why, I mean pistols, sir,' said the man. "'If I must speak good French, I say he had pistols then. "'So thinking he was about some mischief, I crept after him from door to door, "'dodged him across the square, and saw him go in by a gate "'that I thought was shut, into the garden behind the chateau.' I went in after him, though I was in a desperate fright for fear anyone should catch me, and I trembled so that I shook three crowns in my pocket till they rang like sheep-bells. I thought he would have heard me, but I watched him plant himself under one of the statues on the terrace, and there he stood like a statue himself. I defy you to have told the one from the other, or to have known Monsieur Elval from Monsieur Neptune. Whenever I saw that, I came back to look for you and tell you what had happened, for you know, sir, I am awfully afraid of firearms, and I had not even a pair of curling irons to fight him with. That must be near the apartments of Louvois, said the young Count thoughtfully. This man may very likely seek to do him some injury. More likely the king, sir, said the valet in a low voice. I have heard that his majesty walks there on that terrace every fine night after the play, for half an hour. He is quite alone, and it would be as much as one's liberty is worth to approach him at that time. Come with me directly, Riquet, said the Count, and show me where this is. Station yourself at the gate you mention after I have gone in, 
and if you hear me call to you aloud, instantly give the alarm to the sentries. Come, quick, for the play must soon be over. Thus saying, the young Count strode on, crossed the place, and, under the guidance of Riquet, approached the gate through which Erval had entered. The key was in the lock on the outside, and the door ajar, and, leaving the man in the shadow, the Count entered alone. The gardens appeared perfectly solitary, sleeping in the moonlight. The principal waterworks were still, and no sound or motion was to be seen or heard, but such as proceeded from the smaller fountains that were sparkling on the terrace, making the night musical with the plaintive murmur of their waters, or from the tops of the high trees as they were waved by the gentle wind. The palace was full of lights, and nothing was seen moving across any of the windows, so that it was evident that the play was not yet concluded, and the young Count looked about for the person he sought for a moment or two in vain. At length, however, he saw the shadow cast by one of the group of statues alter itself somewhat in form, and instantly crossing the terrace to the spot, he saw Erval sitting on the first step which led from the terrace down to the gardens, his back leaning against the pedestal, and his arms crossed upon his chest. He did not hear the step of the young Count till he was close upon him, but the moment he did so he started up and drew a pistol from his breast. He soon perceived who it was, however, and the Count, saying in a low voice, "'My servants tell me you have been seeking me,' drew him, though somewhat unwilling apparently, down the steps. "'What is it you wanted with me?' continued the Count, gazing in his face to see whether the marks of insanity which Riquet had spoken of were visible to him. But there was nothing more in the man's countenance than its ordinary fierce and fiery expression when stimulated by high excitement. "'I came to you, Count,' he said, "'to make you, if you will, the sharer of a glorious deed. And now you are here, you shall at least be the spectator thereof, the death of your great enemy.' the death of him who tramples upon his fellow-creatures as upon grapes in the wine-press, the death of the slayer of souls and bodies. "'Do you mean Louvois?' said the Count, in a calm tone. "'Louvois!' scoffed the man. "'No, no, no, I mean him who gives fangs to the viper and poison to the snake. I mean him without whom Louvois is but a bundle of dry reeds to be consumed to light the first fire that wants kindling, or to rot in its own emptiness. I mean the giver of the power, the lord of the persecutions, the harlot-monger, the merger that calls himself King of France, and who, from that holy title which he claims from God, thinks himself entitled to pile vice upon folly, and sin upon vice, and crime upon sin, to the destruction which he has so often courted to his own head, shall this night fall upon him. The first of the brutal murderers that he sent down to rob our happy hearths of the jewel of their peace, this hand has slain, and the same that crushed the worm shall crush the serpent also. The Count now saw that there was indeed in the state of Erval's mind something different from its usual tone and character. It could hardly be said that the chief's day thereof was broken, so as to justify the absolute supposition of insanity, but it seemed as if one of the fine filaments of the mental texture had given way, leaving all the rest nearly as it was before, though with a confused and morbid line running through the whole web. It need not be said that Albert of Mosseuil was determined to prevent at all or any risk 
the act that the man proposed to commit, but yet he wished to do so without calling down death and torture on the head of one who was kindled almost into absolute madness by wrongs which touched the finest affections of his heart, through religion and through love. Eval, he said calmly, I am deeply grieved for you. You have suffered, I know how dreadfully, and you have suffered amongst the first of our persecuted sect. But still you must let me argue with you, for you act regarding all this matter in a wrong light, and you propose to commit a great and terrible crime. Argue with me not, Count of Mosoy, cried the man. Argue with me not, for I will hear no arguments. Doubtless you will have argued with me too about killing that small pitiful insect, that blind worm who murdered her I loved, and three or four noble and brave men along with her. I will tell you in a word, Erval, replied the Count. Had you not slain him, I would have done so. My hand against his alone, and my life against his. He had committed a base, foul, ungenerous murder, for which I knew that the corrupted law would give us no redress, and I was prepared to shelter under a custom which I abhor and detest in general, the execution of an act of justice which could be obtained by no other means. Had it been but for that poor girl's sake, I would have slain him like a dog. Thank you, Count, thank you, cried the man, grasping his hand in his with the vehemence of actual frenzy. Thank you for those words from my very soul. But he was not worthy of your noble sword. He died the death that he deserved, strangled like a common felon, writhing and screaming for the mercy he had never shown. To what he said on that head the Count did not reply, but he turned once more to the matter immediately before them. Now, Eval, he said, you see that I judge not unkindly or hardly by you. You must listen to my advice, however. Not about this, not about this, cried the man vehemently. I am desperate and I am determined. I will not see whole herds of my fellow Christians slaughtered like swine to please the bloody butcher on the throne. I will not see the weak and the faint-hearted driven by terror to condemn their own souls and barter eternity for an hour of doubtful peace. I will not see the ignorant and the ill-instructed bought by scores like cattle at a market. I will not see the infants torn from their mother's arms to be offered a living sacrifice to the Moloch of Rome. This night he shall die, who has condemned so many others. This night he shall fall, who would work the fall of the pure church that condemns him. I will hear no advice. I will work the work for which I came, and then perish when I may. Was it not for this that every chance has favoured me? Was it not for this that the key was accidentally left in the door till such time as I laid my hand upon it and took it away? Was it not for this that no eye saw me seize upon that key this morning, though thousands were passing by? Was it not for this that such a thing should happen on the very night in which he comes forth to walk upon that terrace? And shall I now pause? Shall I now listen to any man's advice who tells me that I must hold my hand? If you will not listen to my advice, said the Count, you must listen to my authority, Eval. The act you propose to commit, you shall not commit. No, cried he, who shall stop me? Yours is but one life against mine, remember, and I care not how many fall, or how soon I shall fall myself either, so that this be accomplished. 
"'My life, as you say,' replied the Count, "'is but one. "'But even, Erval, if you were to take mine, "'which would neither be just nor grateful, "'if even you were to lose your own, "'which may yet be of great service "'to the cause of our faith, "'you could not, and you should not, "'take that of the King. "'If you are determined, I am determined too. "'My servant stands at yonder gate, "'and on the slightest noise he gives the alarm.' "'Thus, then, I tell you,' he continued, glancing his eyes towards the windows of the palace, across which various figures were now beginning to move, "'thus, then, I tell you, you must either instantly quit this place with me, or that struggle begins between us, which, end how it may, as far as I am concerned, must instantly ensure the safety of the king, and lead you to trial and execution. The way is still open for you to abandon this rash project at once.' or to call down ruin upon your own head, without the slightest possible chance of accomplishing your object. "'You have frustrated me,' cried the man. "'You have foiled me. "'You have overthrown, by preventing a great and noble deed, "'the execution of a mighty scheme for the deliverance of this land "'and the security of our suffering church. "'The consequences be upon your own head, Count of Mousseux. "'The consequences be upon your own head.' I see that you have taken your measures too well, and that, even if you paid the just penalty for such interference, the result could not be accomplished. Come, then, said the Count, come, Erval, I must forgive anger, as I have thwarted a rash purpose, but make what speed you may to quit the gardens, for, ere another minute be over, many a one will be crossing that terrace to their own apartments. Thus saying, he laid his hand upon the man's arm, to lead him gently away from the dangerous spot on which he stood. But Erval shook off his grasp sullenly, and walked on before, with a slow and hesitating step, as if, every moment, he would have turned in order to effect his purpose. The Count doubted and feared that he would do so, and glad was he indeed when he saw him pass the gate which led out of the gardens. As soon as Erval had gone forth, the young Count closed the door, locked it, and threw the key over the wall, saying, "'There, thank God, it is now impossible.' "'Aye,' replied the man, "'but there are other things possible, Count, "'and things that may cause more bloodshed "'and more confusion than one little pistol-shot. "'It would have saved all France,' "'he continued, muttering to himself. "'It would have saved all France. "'What a change! "'But if we must fight it out in the field, we must.' While he spoke, he walked onward towards the Count's house, in a sort of gloomy but not altogether silent reverie, in the intervals of which he spoke or murmured to himself in a manner which almost seemed to justify the opinion expressed by Riquet that he was insane. Suddenly turning round towards the valet who followed, however, he demanded sharply, "'Has there not been a tall man with a green feather in his hat asking for your lord two or three times to-day?' "'So I have heard,' replied Riquet, "'from the Swiss, but I did not see him myself.' "'The Swiss never informed me thereof,' said the Count. "'Pray, who might he be, and what was his business?' "'His name, sir,' replied Erval, "'is Atreaumont, and his business was for your private ear.' "'Atreaumont,' said the Count in return. "'What, he who was an officer in the guards?' "'Erval nodded his head, and the Count went on. A brave man, a determined man he was, but in other respects a wild, rash profligate. He can have no business for my private ear that I should be glad or even willing to hear. 
"'You know not that, Count,' said Elval. "'He has glorious schemes in view, "'schemes which perhaps may save the country.' "'The Count shook his head. "'Schemes,' he said, "'which will bring ruin on himself "'and on all connected with him. "'I have rarely known or heard of a man "'unprincipled and profligate in private life "'who could be faithful and just in public affairs. "'Such men there may be, perhaps.' but the first face of the case is against them. For surely they who are not to be trusted between man and man are still less to be trusted when greater temptations lie in their way and greater interests are at stake. Well, well, said Elval, he will not trouble you again. This was the last day of his stay in Paris and ere tomorrow be two hours old, he will be far away. And pray, demanded the Count, was it by his advice, he who owes nothing but gratitude to the king? Was it by his advice that you were stationed where I found you? He knew nothing of it, said the man sharply. He knew nothing of it, nor did I intend that he should know till it was all over. And now, he continued, what is to become of me? Why, in the first place, replied the Count, you had better come in with me and take some refreshment. While we are doing so, we will think of the future for you. The man made no reply, but followed the Count who led the way into his house, and then ordered some refreshments of various kinds to be set before his guest from Poitou, examining the man's countenance as he did so, and becoming more and more convinced that something certainly had given way in the brain to produce the wandering and unsettled eye which glared in his face, as well as the rash words and actions that he spoke and performed. "'And now, Eval,' he said as soon as they were alone, there is but one question which you should ask yourself, whether it is better for you to return at once to Poitou, or, since you are so far on your way to Holland, to take advantage of that circumstance and speed to the frontier without delay. I know not what is the situation of your finances, but if money be wanting for either step, I am ready to supply you as an old comrade. I want no money, exclaimed the man. I am wealthy in my station beyond yourself. "'What have I to do with money whose life is not worth an hour? "'I have a great mind to divide all I have into a hundred portions, "'spend one each day, and die at the end of it. "'Holland? No, no, this is no time for me to quit France. "'I will be at my post at the coming moment. "'I will set off again to-night for Poitou. "'But let me tell you, Count, for I have forgotten, "'if you should yourself wish to secure aught in Holland, "'and I have heard that there is a lady dearer to you, than all your broad lands. Remember, there is a schoolmaster living three doors on this side of the barrier of Passy, called Vandenenden, passing for a Fleming by birth, but in reality a native of Dor. He has regular communication with his native land, and will pass anything you please with the utmost security. I thank you for that information sincerely, replied the Count. It may be most useful to me. "'But give me one piece of information more,' he added, "'as the man rose after having drank a glass of water, "'with a few drops of wine in it. "'What was the state of the province when you left it?' "'If you mean, Count, what was the state of the reformed party,' "'said Erval, gazing round with a look of wild carelessness. "'It was a girl in a consumption where something is lost every day. "'No one knows how, and yet the whole looks as pretty as ever.' till there is nothing but a skeleton remains. But there will be this difference, Count. There will be this difference. There will be strength found in the skeleton. Have you not heard? 
There were three thousand men, together with women and children, all converted at once within ten miles of Niort, and it cost the priest so much bread and wine giving them the sacrament that he swore he would make no more converts unless the king would double the value of the cure. <laughs> and laughing loud and wildly, he turned upon his heel and left the room without bidding the count good night. End of chapter 19